Would you go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5? And uh, we're reading a familiar passage this morning, Galatians chapter 5. Before we do that, uh, Pastor Tim asked me to give you guys an update on how he is and, and what's going on. Uh, so if you don't know, he has, uh, uh, he's recovering from an incident where he fell and, and, and sustained an injury to his head, uh, uh, gave him a concussion, and he has sought the uh, uh, care of doctors and advice, and, and, and he has, uh, he's recovering at home and resting, and uh, so he asked for you to pray for him as he, so that as he seeks a full recovery and rest from that. Um, he's, he's getting better, but he's still just a... Um, uh, still just recovering from that injury and that concussion. And so please pray for him. And uh, that's what's happening there. Um, and uh, that's why I've been with you these last three weeks preaching. So, um, but now we're going to be in Galatians 5, starting in verse 18 through 24. Uh, so Galatians 5, starting in verse 18, and we'll be reading through 24. It says this. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Let's pray. Our Father... Make your name holy in this time and place. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Oh, Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Jesus once said of people that you will know them by their fruits, meaning you'll be able to recognize genuine believers and false ones by what fruit they produce in their lives. But I also think that he might have meant that you will actually know them, like know, you'll know what they're like at their core, at their roots. And, and this saying of Jesus is something to consider when we come to this familiar passage in Galatians 5, because here is a passage well worth reflecting on deeply. And many of us in this room have a portion of this passage memorized, and rightfully so. There is a step, though, sometimes neglected in memorization, and that's reflection. Words are more than just sounds, and sometimes we've just memorized the sounds. But these words are rich and deep and worth reflecting on. There's a strange phenomenon I've noticed about this passage that when people, uh, when they recite the fruit of the Spirit, it's like they're in a race. They say it like as fast as they can. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. And, like and it makes me think that maybe we've got the, the sounds down more than the meaning. But if Jesus is saying is true, that you know a tree by its fruit, then these fruits will help us know the tree named the Holy Spirit. We'll know him by his fruit. And to me, that's worth slowing down a bit. 
And I really do believe that this is one of the most important passages for understanding the Christian life because it helps us understand how we are changed and it shows us a vision for who we are becoming. And you've got to have a vision for the kind of person you hope to be. That is ultimately what will drive you in this life beyond just drifting through life. Even in little ways, like when I play with my kids in the floor, when I'm tired and otherwise would choose not to. I do it because I love them, but also because I do it because I want to be the kind of dad who plays on the floor with his kids when he's tired, because I think that's what part of what love looks like. I read a book this week, which had a, a quote that I loved. It was like an adventure story, and one of the main characters was this little boy who was very devout. He was a former apprentice under some monks, and at one point in the story, he came through this point of despair to a point of spiritual clarity, and he said this, Life is only disappointing if there's nothing after it. Otherwise, life is our time in a craftsman's hands, the way a piece of wood is carved into a spoon by a carpenter, or reeds are woven by a basket weaver. We grow into whatever we allow to be made of us. Our afterlife is not the market or the workshop. It is in the home of our master, whatever master we have spent our lives serving. I love that thought. That life is our time in a craftsman's hands. And he is making something of us. And this text shows us the kind of new creation we are being molded into. And it gives us hope that such a vision is possible for us. Because it's the power of God himself working in us to do this. The Holy Spirit who naturally overflows in producing abundant fruit out of his very nature, wherever he is present. And when we walk in step with him through faith in Christ, we will see this fruit emerge in our lives, ripe and delicious and nourishing our souls and others. And like all fruit, it will bear seeds within it, seeds full of potential to be planted in souls that will one day bear fruit of their own. So this morning, as we reflect on this fruit, I think to be faithful to the context it'd be good for us to contrast the fruit of the Spirit with the works of the flesh. Because that's what Paul himself does in this chapter. And so when we do that, uh, the first thing that we notice by way of contrast is the titles, right? The names of themselves. Works of the flesh versus fruit of the Spirit. But also works of the flesh versus fruit of the Spirit. See, there's two contrasts. One between works and fruit, and the other between flesh and Spirit. The less expected contrast comes between works and fruit. Like, why not call them works of the Spirit, right? That would be natural. These are the works of the flesh. These are the works of the Spirit. But that's not what he does. He says these are a different kind of thing altogether. So how are one works and the other fruit? Why does he make that distinction? And I think there's two reasons that work together. I think he's guarding us from an abuse of these virtues that he lists so that we don't take them to be just another law imposed on us and start wielding them like legalists. Because remember last week, the story last week and the whole context of Galatians really, this is something that he's pushing back against, against legalism and self-justification and self-righteousness. Because the danger with a list like this is that we can say, oh, okay, kindness, got it. And then, and then that legalistic pride within us grabs hold of that and we train ourselves to be nice people and do nice things and we become very self-satisfied about our niceness before God and man. And the very same lostness and self-centeredness and self-sufficiency and pride is just continuing on in a different form. 
Learning a few new behaviors is not what God is after. He doesn't just want rotten apples with a shiny, glossy veneer of red paint. He wants a whole new fruit. He wants to change us from the inside out. And he wants to uproot that old withering plant and grow something magnificent and evergreen in its place. So these here are the products of a new heart, not just a new law and the works thereof. But also the word works, when you see the actual list that he associates with works of the flesh, it's kind of interesting because he associates it with things like envy and anger with works of the flesh. How are these works, right? Because people don't usually work at being these things, work at being angry or envious. It just comes out of them. Often, actually, people, when they're envious or angry, they, don't, they think of it as something they can't help doing. Not that they're working at it. But I think it's not the effort that he's pinpointing here by calling them works, but the attitude. Because what do works lead to? Entitlement. Right? When you work for a paycheck, you feel entitled to that paycheck. And the, what is envy then, if not entitlement? Right? You think you deserve what these people have, and so you envy them. What is anger, if not entitlement? You feel like you deserve to be treated better than you're being treated, so you get angry. And these are works of the flesh. Just like the works of the law make a person feel entitled before God. That he ought to bless them because they've done, they've worked in this law. And so Paul is saying the fruit of the spirit is free of all entitlement. It's walking in the blessedness of grace, of gift. Trusting someone who is not you to change you. And taking steps like you believe he is and he will. It's a different thing. It has a different source, which is the contrast between flesh and spirit. Works of the flesh and fruit of the spirit. When he says flesh, he doesn't just mean our body, uh, like bodily appetites and such. Some of these things that he lists are like that, but others aren't. The flesh is just the Bible's way of saying the human state that is dominated by sin. And it actually, the way he says that actually points to a vivid and powerful truth, which is the truth that in the state of sin, our souls are actually dead. This is the way the Bible talks about us, that our souls are dead in sin and our bodies will shortly follow. But when the Holy Spirit regenerates us, our souls are revived to eternal life and our bodies will shortly follow in the resurrection. It's a complete reversal. So when he says flesh versus spirit, it's actually death as opposed to life. But the difference is also between self and God, right? Because the flesh is ours, but the spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, is God. The determining factor shaping our hearts and minds and lives, he's saying, it was us, dead old us. But now it's him, fountain of life, him. And we're given this list to see what it's like when he's with us and when he's in us. And when we're walking in step with him. And that's an important side note. Because if you want to know if you're walking in step with the Spirit, the main thing to look for is, not, is the Spirit's fruit, not the Spirit's gifts. 
If you, when you want to know if, if the spirit is in you and if you're living accordingly, you don't look for miraculous gifts like speaking in tongues and healing and such. You look for miraculous fruit. Fruit is consistent. Every healthy tree bears fruit. And these fruits really are miraculous. Meaning they are supernaturally affected in our souls by the presence and power of God himself. So now we will meditate on the various fruits themselves and try to understand them through contrasting them with the other list that Paul gives us, which is the works of the flesh. Because I found it kind of enlightening to take the, take the nine fruit of the spirit and pair them up with nine works of the flesh, starting with enmity. But, but when I do that, before I get into this, I want to go on record as saying these are not equal and opposite ideas that we're dealing with. Because I have a conviction that good is much bigger than bad. Goodness is much more robust than badness. It is fuller and deeper and richer. The joy of heaven is a million times more joyful than even the despair of hell is despairing. I believe you can never be as miserable in sin as you will be happy in God. Amen. And that is because we are not dualists. Good and evil are not equal and opposite forces in this world struggling to gain the upper hand. No, the force behind and above all things is an infinite person of goodness and beauty and truth. So I say that because I want you to know that this contrast can only get us so far in understanding the fruit of the Spirit. It's a first step, but it's by no means an exhaustive step. Each of these positive terms is a sea, while each of these negative terms is a pebble. But for our limited time this morning, it's a start. So let's start. First, I'll give you the list and then we'll go through it, okay? The list. Love versus enmity. Joy versus strife. Peace versus jealousy. Patience versus fits of anger. Kindness versus rivalries. Goodness versus dissensions. Faithfulness versus divisions. Gentleness versus envy. And self-control versus drunkenness and carousing. And the context for all of these is amongst others in community. That's important to remember that it's not all by my lonesome that we evaluate ourselves based on this list. But I mean, like, sure, I'm patient when I'm sitting alone all by myself. But what about when you're in the midst of a dozen bothersome people? Then are you patient? The letter to the Galatians was written to a church community, guiding people not only in how they relate to God, but also in how they relate to one another. So as we reflect on this list and even use it to examine ourselves, we ought to think about our effect on others and others' effect on us. Then we can rightly ask, am I kind or am I irritating? Am I patient or am I irritable? Am I self-controlled or am I carried away? Am I faithful or am I flaky? And it will do no good to think of yourself in some spiritual, isolated, meditative state. That's not what this is about. The fruit is for the nitty-gritty of real relationships. So now we'll go through each of these fruit of the Spirit, reflecting on them to know the Holy Spirit and to know ourselves. And to give a hopeful vision for who He is and who He is making us to become with Him. So let's dig in. First is love. He starts with love 
Because as Paul has said elsewhere, love is the greatest. The first fruit of the Holy Spirit as he lays down roots in our hearts and erupts with produce is love. And this means that he himself is loving, right? Let's remember that as we move through these, that he wants these things to become a part of us because they are a part of what he is like. He is loving and he molds our hearts to match his. So what is this love like? Well, throughout this chapter, Paul actually mentions love quite a bit in Galatians 5. So those passages, I think, would be a good place for us to start. He says in verse 6, For in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So there, it's the expression of genuine faith in Christ. Love is how our faith in Christ is seen. Now look at verses 13 through 16, and we start to see a picture of of love emerge, of what it looks like. He says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So love says here that rather than indulging my own desires and passions, I seek to humbly serve others. This kind of love, Paul then says, fulfills the whole law. And then he adds a warning not to devour one another. And this reminds me of a passage in C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, which are uh, written, if you're not familiar with them, they're written from a perspective of a demon tempter giving advice to another demon tempter. And the demons see their, their goal as devouring and contrast that with God's love. So let me read it to you. Just know also when he talks about the enemy, he's talking about God. Okay, so he says, To us, a human is primarily food. Our aim is the absorption of its will into ours, the increase of our own area of selfhood at its expense. But the obedience which the enemy demands of men is quite a different thing. One must face the fact that all the talk about his love for men and his service being perfect freedom is not, as one would gladly believe, mere propaganda, but is an appalling truth. He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself, creatures whose life on its miniature scale will be qualitatively like his own, not because he has absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his. We want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over. Our war aim is a world in which our father below has drawn all other beings into himself. The enemy wants a world full of beings united to him, but still distinct. And that's such a clear picture, I think, of what love is and the opposite of what love is. Sucking in, devouring versus giving out and loving And the insight that the Bible gives us about how we love ourselves, being the guide for what love means towards others, is so practical and helpful, really, when you think about it. Because we are always trying to meet our own needs and heal our own wounds and make ourselves happy and cherishing our own successes and weeping about our own losses. And then God sees that and he says, 
you know how to love. You love yourself just fine. You just need to take that same concept and practice it toward other people as well. And you're in luck because I am a God of love and I will fill you with my spirit and he will produce this fruit in you and, in, and the other fruit of the spirit in you. Like the second fruit mentioned, which is joy. Joy. Our God is a happy God. He is not how so many cynics imagine him, as sour and dour and dull. He is vibrant and joyful and bright and alive. He is happy. And when his spirit is in and among his people, he makes them happy too. He wants to make us happy. And since happiness only exists because it's a part of his own nature and because he made us to share this part of him, he knows what true happiness is. He knows what will bring it, what will sustain it within our soul. He knows that happiness cannot happen for happiness sake. That's what some people have called the hedonic paradox, that if you are always seeking the feeling of happiness, it will always elude you and be fleeting. Happiness has to be rooted in something other than itself. True happiness must be rooted in something other than the feeling of happiness. Otherwise, when you are always just after that next hit of happiness, it's inevitably fleeting and it slips through your fingers like smoke. True happiness is rooted not in the feeling of happiness, but in whatever it is that brings you that happiness. And God knows that we must have a source of joy that can shoulder the burden of sustaining our happiness. Something good enough, someone glorious enough. In fact, he made us to share his very own happiness. And we humans cut ourselves off from true happiness when we sin because our sin cuts us off from God who is the source of lasting joy. And, and Christ though, he has made a way back to true happiness. Because he has made a way back to God. He has bridged the chasm created by our sin, forgiving our sin and welcoming us into everlasting joy. This is why when Jesus told that famous parable of the talents and at the end of that parable, you know, the, uh, the master commends his servants with that well-known saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. And then he goes on, he says, you've been faithful over little, I will set you over much. And then what's he say? Enter into the joy of your master. This is our hope that we enter into the joy of our master. And through the spirit, we can start today. This kind of joy, it diffuses strife because its roots are in God. It is much more stable than any other joy. It isn't as easily destroyed on Maundy Thursday, in a couple weeks, we will have a service where we reflect on joy and peace because on Jesus' last night with his disciples, these people that he loved and spent the last three years with, as Christ faced the cross, he said to them that he wanted to give them these gifts. He wanted to give to his friends the very things that he had in his soul. He said, I've taught you these things that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And then he said, he said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives. Do not let you, your heart be troubled and do not be afraid. Which leads us to the next fruit, which is peace. 
And there's another very familiar passage where, te- uh, where the Apostle Paul calls this peace, peace which surpasses understanding. And again, like with joy, we see that the subjective experience of it is rooted in an objective reality. Christ has made peace between us and God. That's the objective reality. In our sin, we were at odds with God. Remember a couple weeks ago when we were talking about the conversion of the Apostle Paul and and Jesus comes to him and he says, I know it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Meaning he was kicking against God's purposes for him and prodding of him. And Jesus says that way of life is hard. It's hard for you to do that. It's not peaceful. But through the cross, Christ has reconciled us to God and made us, made peace. Therefore, his spirit brings peace. And when we are at peace with joy, we receive the blessed jewel of a virtue called contentment, which is so rare today. When I love someone, I find that I pray for them to be content because it is an incredible and powerful blessing. And I believe true contentment is the union of Christ's joy and Christ's peace. This is how peace eradicates the work of the flesh called jealousy, because it makes us content. And when we have peace, that is the fruit of the Spirit, as with all of his fruit, it is powerful because he is powerful. And it leads us to not just be satisfied and complacent, it actually leads us to become agents of that peace, to become peacemakers. And Jesus said in the the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. I hope you can already see how this leads into our next fruit, which is the fruit of the Spirit called patience. The word doesn't just mean the ability to wait in a line, as we tend to use it these days. It actually means forbearance, long-suffering, bearing with other people through hard times, even, when they're, even in their hard-to-deal-withness. When you have the Spirit's love and joy and peace, you become patient, even with irritating people. And notice our our two lists, in our two lists, patience is opposed to what? Fits of anger. The Greek word there is just the word for anger, but it's plural. And that's why they translate it as fits of anger. It says angers, multiple. I know some people have seemed to try to reclaim anger as some good thing, but I would say the vast majority of our anger is rooted in immaturity and in the flesh. Which is why James says, The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. He says, therefore, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. I think slowness to anger is a good way of describing patience, but it's more than that too. It's a willingness to actually bear with others in humility. It could be seen as one side of a coin with the other side of the coin being this next fruit of the Spirit, which is kindness. Christian kindness is not just random acts. But as Don Carson comments on the famous love passage in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, Love is kind, not merely patient or long-suffering in the face of injury, but actually quick to pay back with kindness what it received in hurt. So patience is one side of the coin, bearing with one another's, and kindness is the other side of the coin actively blessing others. 
Patience gives spiritual space for, and time for the fruit of kindness to ripen and mature and, and produce outward acts. Christian kindness is costly kindness. Courageous kindness. And of course, remember the context. This is a fruit of the Spirit. In other words, our God is kind. And we know this because he has shown kindness to us in the face of our rebellion and our sin. Through him, we can be kind in a mean-spirited world. And our world is mean-spirited. But we can be kind in a world of rivalry, rivalries where we're always thinking about tearing down and getting ahead, we can be a breath of fresh air through the kindness of Christ and his spirit within us. Kindness is a powerful testimony to an otherworldly power driving us. And that's a good description of this next fruit, which is goodness. Kindness is more of an outward expression where goodness is this general disposition that we carry with us through the spirit. To be full of goodness is to be the kind of person who's ready and willing to do good at any and every opportunity. To walk in the Spirit means we carry His heart with us. To be of use to those who need us. To be generous and helpful and flexible and agreeable. In one of the, uh, his parenting books, Paul Tripp uh, suggested that this is the kind of high aim we ought to work at and pray for to see in our children. Not just concerning ourselves with their overt rebellion and, and obedience to rules, but also the cultivation of deep goodness. And he gave a little case study where a mom was busily preparing for company, obviously stressed and nervous and acting frenetically. And, and because she was not close to being ready and they were coming very soon. And her two kids at the this, at this same point in time were in the other room in an open floor plan house and in uh, full sight of her, and they were playing quietly on their video games, observing their mother's frenetic activity. And then he asked, well, what's wrong with this picture? And many of us would answer, nothing. If I'm working hard and able to focus while my kids play quietly together, then this is a blessing from the Lord himself. But each of the kids is old enough to see that their mom is in need. And they have become familiar with their mom enough to see, to know her emotions and understand that she needs help. And they have some abilities that could be of help to her and lift her burden. But they don't offer help because they don't really care about how she's feeling. And that's not okay. It shouldn't be okay. What is being revealed in that scene is actually the source of much of the hurt and heartache and dysfunction and conflict in humanity. The children have not rebelled against the rule. They haven't disobeyed or refused to do what they are told. But it's still wrong. To go back to the sermon from last week, it's out of step with the truth of the gospel. But the Spirit of God is full of goodness. He is the source and spring of goodness goodness. And when we walk in step with him and his, good, his goodness becomes a deep part of our character. Goodness seeks to care and preserve and protect and help, which is why it is diametrically opposed to dissensions, which seek to divide and tear down. Goodness only looks for defects in order to help while the flesh looks for defects out of spite or bitterness or pride. And that leads to divisions. 
driving arbitrary wedges into communities that need not be there. And this work of the flesh of divisions is contrasted to faithfulness, which is the next fruit of the Spirit. Faithfulness is the practical expression of faith, right? It's right there in the name, faithfulness. Faith, as the reformers saw it, had three components. It had the ideas of belief and trust that we are generally familiar with, but it also had the idea of allegiance or commitment, which is where we get the word faithfulness. It means you're committed. You're not wishy-washy. You follow through. And of course, we learn this in our, first, in our relationship to Christ. This is where we first learn this. Our, we place our faith in him, meaning we commit our lives to him in faithfulness. And he has committed his life to us in faithfulness. Again and again, we see the scriptures call our God faithful, don't we? What kind of faith does God have? He doesn't just believe in us. He definitely doesn't trust in us. No, he's committed to us. He's committed to his promises. He is faithful. And when he moves in and among us, we are faithful to him and to one another. Our faithfulness ought to be formidable. I said this in a talk to uh, the men once. We ought to be formidable in our faithfulness because when someone who is is utterly committed to to a cause to the point of being willing to die for it, to give themselves up for it completely, that person is formidable. But more and more people are unfaithful to their most essential callings, uncommitted to anything and anyone, quick to give up in formal and informal ways on the people and positions that matter most. In every area of life that God places us, we are to steward that calling with faithfulness. And especially we are called to faithfulness in our families, in our churches, Formidable faithfulness is to be radically committed to the people God has given you. To the point that your family can know and everyone around can know, including Satan, they know without a doubt that you will never give up on them or abandon them or neglect them nor let them be harmed without great cost to yourself first. A person with the fruit of faithfulness can be counted on. Because his God can be counted on. And in light of talking about being formidable, it's good that our next fruit of the Spirit is gentleness. We're not formidable because we're harsh or violent or severe. And it's, it's only the extent of our commitment that's formidable. But in application, we are to be gentle in the Spirit. It takes, and gentleness is not weakness. It takes great strength to be gentle In fact, it works hand in hand with the next fruit of the Spirit, which is self-control. And in the next chapter of Galatians, Paul calls us to gentleness as how we are to restore others who have strayed and sinned. He says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So you don't be harsh or domineering, or judgmental with people who are caught in sin. You treat them gently, and you seek to restore them. Like how he says, I I like how he says too, that you who are spiritual. Because remember, this is in the chapter right after this one, where he's describing the fruit of the Spirit. And so he mentions those fruits. uh, uh, When he mentions being spiritual, that's not a coincidence. 
He's saying to be truly spiritual person is to walk in step with the spirit producing these fruits of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, and so on. So we are called to gentleness when correcting fellow Christians. But we're also called to gentleness in how we speak to unbelievers. This is what we're told in 1 Peter. He says, but in your heart, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So the context in that passage is people questioning our faith. So it's obviously non-believers. And sure, some of those people will be open to it, but others will slander us. And he says to all of them, we are to speak with gentleness. We must not adopt our culture's outrage and slander culture. We must be gentle people who are led by the spirit of gentleness. And this will take the final fruit of the spirit, which is self-control. As opposed to some people's understanding of the Holy Spirit, when he is operating in your heart, you do not lose control of yourself. You actually gain control of yourself. When the spirit begins to work in your life, God will restore control of you to you. Titus 2, 11 through 12 tells us that the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Notice that. Grace trains us. Grace is God's work. God does the work. But when God works, he doesn't do it apart from our efforts, but through our efforts. God doesn't simply zap us into holiness. Instead, he works in our lives so that we master our thoughts and our eyes and our hands and our imaginations. We take our thoughts captive. We present our members to him as instruments for righteousness. Dallas Willard has a wonderfully clarifying quote where he says, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. And that's an important distinction. To live by grace doesn't mean we don't put forth any effort. Grace means we don't presume to earn God's love and favor by our effort. And it gives us, his grace gives us the right kind of effort, fueled by the right kind of power and the right kind of motivation. And that Titus passage tells us grace trains us to live self-controlled. And self-control often means self-denial. Something that Jesus teaches us explicitly, but also by his example. He called us, right, clearly to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him daily. And then he shows us what that looks like. He showed us the beauty and the power of self-denial in the garden of Gethsemane when he prayed, Lord, if it's possible, take this cup from me, as he stared down the penalty of our sin that he was going to bear. But then he said, not my will but your will be done. He has shown us self-control. He has shown us self-denial. He has shown us the spirit-filled life. And he shares that life with you. In Christ, you are no longer a slave to your passions and desires. You can live for something greater than that. Just like he did. Just like he does. You are freed to be more you than you ever have. 
And that is the truth that made those demons so disgusted in that quote I read from the screw tape letters. How his love actually makes us free rather than just absorbing us in like they want to do. Jesus is the perfect man of love. He fully embodied the fruit of the Spirit, joy and peace. He was a man of patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And he has deployed all of these fruits for your sake, for the nourishing and reviving of your soul. And he offers his own spirit to you to give you a new life, a life like his own because it is his own. And, and we receive it by faith, by trusting him, by, tr- by opening ourselves up to his grace to work in our souls. Humble yourself. That's what it takes. Humble yourself and give yourself over to him. And he will give you yourself back, renewed and free and conformed to his glory. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for sending the helper, your Holy Spirit who fills us and makes us fruitful. So make us, Lord, walk in step with him. Humble us to live by grace. Give us the joy of gratitude. Encourage us, encourage all of us to Through your power, uproot the works of the flesh from our hearts, rejecting all entitlement, yet receiving with open hands and hearts all that you willingly give, which is so much. And we pray this with Jesus. Amen.